0: I am, as I told you, especially excited about the holidays um, for so many reasons, um, but food is definitely one of my top reasons, and so uh, so just keep me in prayer um, during this month that I would be a good steward of my body, amen? Um, <laughs> I'm going to need your prayer, <laughs> and so anyways, I... This morning, we're going to start, we're going to kick off. First, it's great to be here. Two weeks, we had some amazing guest speakers come and preach, and so it's, uh, yeah, they were awesome, but it is great to be just back up here just to share my heart and continue to grow alongside of the church. And so today, and for the next kind of four messages, um, we're going to be moving in the next four weeks in a new sermon series that I'm simply calling Living, And um, the idea for this Living Series was inspired by the thought that if we're going to become a mission-minded church, then we're going to have to live out our discipleship with Monday in mind. Because as Christians, the gospel that we believe speaks to every part of our lives. As pastors sometimes... We can create habits of equipping our congregations for the minority of their lives rather than the majority of their week. But again, if Inspired Church is going to become all God has called us to become, we're going to have to focus on being the scattered church just as much as we focus on being the gathered church. There's a little something, I didn't coin this phrase, but I've heard it before. It's called the minority-majority disparity. And the minority-majority disparity is simply what I told you is this is sometimes as leaders... As disciples, as pastors and as churches, we can equip our congregates for Sunday morning but fail to prepare them for the rest of the week. And so so we have churches in America that are prepared to come to church on Sunday morning. They know the routine. They show up at a particular time. They know there's going to be two to three songs. It's going to last about 20 to 25 minutes. And afterwards, we're going to have 90 seconds to say hi. I'm going to get my donuts at that point. Then I'm going to sit down. And we know the routine of Sunday morning morning and so we do a good job of training you in the routine of the Sunday morning but sometimes we fall short of preparing you for the majority of your life so with that in mind we're gonna break kind of this living series down into four sections this morning we're gonna be talking about living for God's glory and next week we'll be talking about living out the call of God over your life There's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to the call of God. Am I called? Do I have a destiny? Do I have a purpose? So I really want to invite you to come back next week. But this morning I want to focus on living for God's glory. In fact, my prayer for year two would be a prayer of mission. That everyone in this room would feel like a missionary... That you wouldn't need to be prayed over or be sent as a missionary. As long as you love Jesus and there's breath in your body, that you would see yourself as a missionary. My prayer in year two is that we would develop disciples with Monday in mind. Disciples with Monday in mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that your words would be released into the hearts and the minds of the hearers. Lord, I pray that you would just empty me of myself. I pray that you would empty the listener of self so that no self would get in the way this morning. And I pray that your word that is sent out, I pray that it would accomplish everything that it's been called to accomplish. And I pray that there would be good seed on good soil. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a question for you. Uh, any sports, any football fans in the building? Wow, we don't have a lot of football fans, okay. That's cool, that's totally okay, nothing wrong with that. Uh, some of you just don't want to clap because you're in church, but who remembers, who remembers Tim Tebow? Anybody remember, wave at me if you remember Tim Tebow. It's not like he's gone somewhere, he's still very much a part of our culture, but uh, are there any Tim Tebow fans in here? Any Tim Tebow fans in here? Cool. Cool. Now, for those of you who remember Tim Tebow, you may recall the 2001, I believe it was 2001 football season. And uh, that was a really interesting season for so many different reasons, and I'll explain why. But first, I was watching a clip. I was watching a 2011, I guess. People, I, I realize I'm like 2001, I graduated in 99. That's a really a long time ago. Someone's like, 2011, apologies. But uh, <laughs> threw me off. I was watching a clip the other day, and man, Tim Tebow has been put through the ringer when it when it comes to uh, when it comes to his athletic ability, specifically. Well, not his athletics, but specifically his ability to play quarterback. And I was watching a clip that was circulating the other day, and it was an analyst. Um, that uh, writes blogs and does podcasts in Denver, because Tim Tebow was drafted by the Denver Broncos. And uh, and he was sitting, and he was recalling the season that Tim Tebow was assuming the position of starter at quarterback for the Broncos. And he said something. He says, look, Tim Tebow's a great guy. He's very charismatic. In fact, he's, one of the, he's a great athlete, and he could play a lot of positions, but quarterback is not a position that he could play. And... As I was continuing to listen, he was trying his best to sound nice, but it came out really, really messed up. But he was like, I would go and watch him play on the practice field with the Broncos, and I seriously questioned whether he was left-handed at all. Now, some of you are kind of like, uh, but he was a quarterback, and he throws left-handed, and for someone to go and question whether he was left-handed at all, that person, in other words, saying, look, that guy had no arm, and he really didn't understand how, how he could play football and play quarterback and make it to this place and, um, and throw the way that he did. And so there was a lot of people that came against Tim Tebow because of the way that he played quarterback. Now, I'm not here to talk about whether you think he played well or whether you think he played different. But I, I want to set that kind of backdrop because on December 11, 2011, how many of you guys know the sportscaster Bob Costas? Very eloquent with his words. Um, he spent two minutes during a halftime report weighing in on what seemed to be the most exciting and polarizing phenomena in sports at that time, the Tim Tebow era, which included in 2011 several of what seemed to be magical fourth quarter comebacks. So here's this guy that everyone put down, that people said, I'm not even sure he could play quarterback, yet in the 2011 season, he had some miracle fourth quarter comebacks. So Costas... Um, during the halftime of a particular Sunday night football uh, football game, decided to share on this phenomenon. Costas suggested that Tebow's recent string of performances were quote approaching okay. We'll say it the miraculous. Bob Costas quickly changed his tone when he went on to suggest that the God Tebow worships has no interest in influencing the outcome of games. Now, I want you to know this, that Tebow is a, he doesn't make no bones about it, he is a Christian. He's always giving honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And so this segment was interesting because Costas was suggesting that, hey, what we're seeing that Tebow is doing in the fourth quarter, is it, quote, unquote, a miracle. But he went on to suggest that the God that Tebow worships doesn't influence the outcome of games. Now, I want to give you the exact quote that Bob Costas gave us that Sunday night at halftime. He said this. Again today, Tebow did next to nothing until the waning moments of the game. And then down 10-0 with two minutes left, he throws a touchdown pass. And the Broncos tie it at the gun on a 59-yard field goal. And then they win it in overtime on a 51-yard field goal. And then Costas continued, The combination of Denver's continuing late heroics And today, the Bears' otherwise unexplainable errors is enough to have some at least suspect divine intervention. Except that Tebow, whose sincere faith cannot be questioned and should be respected, also has the good sense and good grace to make it clear that he does not believe God takes a hand in the outcome of games. Most of us are good with that. Otherwise, how to explain what happens when there are equal numbers of believers on either side? Or why so many of those same believers came up empty facing Sandy Koufax? Or hit the deck against Muhammad Ali? Or why the Almighty wouldn't have better things to do? Costas continued for about another half minute, but the question I want to ask you today is this. Does God take a hand In the outcome of games. Or does he have better things to do? Now, I know these questions sound like the type of questions that should be asked in a locker room. Or maybe in man caves around America. But these questions, believe it or not, are deeply theological. And their answers carry profound effect on whether or not our discipleship goes beyond Sunday and into Monday. You see, every single one of us was created to give God glory. Every single one of us was created to give God glory. There's nothing too small. There's nothing too insignificant. There's nothing too big that exists outside of God's concerns. As the opening lines of the Westminster Catechism says, man's chief ends is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So for the rest of today, I want to take a look at how God's glory in everything should change everything. God's glory in everything changes everything. Now if you have your scriptures, can you please open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, God's glory in everything changes everything. Today will be a little bit different than the normal style of preaching. Just to give you a heads up, most of you are used to a very systematic. Your notes are perfectly placed. Today we're going to kind of gradually teach into the main subject and so stay with me. I will do my best not to lose you. But if you can open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. And if you have it, can you just give me an amen? amen. All right. And obviously we have it up here as well. Um, and so here we go. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10. This is what the word of the Lord says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve One another. Man, I could just preach right there. You know, all of you have a gift, and we get it wrong when we use it to serve ourselves. But here, the apostle tells us, use it to serve one another. Now, I want you to see this. Why? As good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, hold your finger there. We're not done with 1 Peter, but I do want to stop. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, I want to pause here because something crucial is being said to us. The apostle Peter is teaching us that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is given a gift. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you are gifted. Done. There's no question about it. So you say, well, I'm not gifted. If you have put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you are gifted. A gift is a grace given to you by God. In other words, you're not just gifted, but you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish tasks for his glory. Now, the Apostle Peter is urging the church, he's urging you and I not to hoard these gifts. You ever watch that show, Hoarders? Some of you guys love A&E, right? (laughs) You ever ever seen those houses that are just full of all kinds? In the same way, don't hoard the gift that God has given you. But to use them faithfully as stewards of God's grace. Now, here's a very important point I want you to see based off of this one verse. Everyone has a gift because everyone has a task. You're given a gift because God has given you something to do. Now let's continue to verse 11. You with me? First uh, Peter continues. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. Again, let's pause. Not only is Peter telling us God has given us gifts, but he's also teaching us that God gives different gifts to different people. We're not all the same, and that's what makes us so incredible. A few weeks ago, I think I admit, admitted to most of you that I am horrible with my hands. Poor Philip and my wife have to wait several weeks to get things done with, that normal men get done in an hour on a Saturday morning. But there are many of you in here that are probably looking at me with saying, poor guy, because you are great with your hands. My friend Brian over here can literally create a home in a week. (laughs) One day I went into his house and it was nice. The next week I came in and there was a whole new added on room. And I looked and I was like, how did this happen? He's like, well, I had a little extra time on a Saturday. And boom, I built a man cave. (laughs) Now, the first part of me became insanely uh, insecure. But I said, brother, we're friends. You complete me. (laughs) Some of you are incredible with your hands. On the other hand, there are some of you in here that would never see yourself standing on a pulpit in a room full of people speaking or teaching. Are you with me? Here's what I want you to catch. The differences in the body of Christ make us more powerful. The differences in the body of Christ make us more potent as a church. If everyone was a mouth... Lord Jesus, help us. Nothing would ever get built. And if everyone were a set of hands, Lord Jesus, help us, nothing would ever get communicated. The body of Christ is at its best. Hear me out. The body of Christ is at its best when it's completing and at its worst when it's competing. You with me? The body of Christ is at its best when it's completing And at its worst when it's competing. The body of Christ is at its best when it's co-laboring. And at its worst when it's comparing. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I'm not as good as that person? I want you to know that that's not how God wired you to think. The body of Christ is at its best when it's completing and not competing. When it's co-laboring and it's not competing comparing here's another important point different gifts allows the church to become more effective so as we celebrate the differences you may ask what is the commonality that brings us all together well let's finish first peter chapter 4 verse 11 peter continues whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of god Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. Now here it is. In order that, are you ready? In everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Here it is. Our common goal in a body full of differences is that everything is to glorify God. Our common goal as the body of Christ is in everything God Glorified. Now, I'd like for us now to turn over to First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirty-one. Again, today is going to be a little bit more topical, but there's a purpose behind this. Turn to First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirty-one. Now, as you're turning there, I'd love to give you a little context. One of the things, if you've been around me long enough, one of the things you know that it's a pet peeve of mine is to pull a random scripture out and just give it to you without at least telling you what the entire context had to say. And so as Christians, we have to be careful that we don't just take little bits and pieces of scripture and use it to glorify what we want to say. right? Just like you wouldn't want anyone taking a quote from a a whole section that you said and saying, well, look, you hear what so-and-so said, and they didn't get the whole point. And so I think we shouldn't do that with God's word. So before I read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, I'm going to give you a little context. Is that okay? So for three things I want to tell you about 1 Corinthians 10. Number one, Paul is the author, and Paul has been ministering freedom to the church. I want you to hear this. In fact, Paul labors at a great cost to himself to make this revelation known. That you are free in Christ and you are not bound to the law, to legalism. Secondly, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul reminds the church that love is the greater value than freedom. And even though Paul is working at all costs to preach freedom, he carefully tells his church that love is greater than freedom. Freedom. Well, what do you mean by that? He says this, if my freedom causes a brother to stumble, then love dictates that I give up my personal right for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul says we are free in Christ, but we love in Christ. And if my freedom causes a brother to stumble, then I'll take my personal right away, and I will, for the gospel, not practice my freedoms. Are you with me? Now it'll get interesting, and we will we'll probably one day we'll preach this entire text. It's so interesting. But Paul will go on to mention several different social scenarios that a Christian may find themselves in, including eating dinner with non-believers and what to do if the Christian is offered meat that has been previously sacrificed to idols. Fascinating chapter. I did make a side note. Can I do a side note real quick? It never fails every year. As Halloween gets closer, that if you're on Facebook and social media, everyone is posting about this, if you're a Christian. I get a little frustrated sometimes. Let me get off of the pulpit, just in case I get struck down. <laughs> can, I be, can I be honest? And this is my honesty. You can disagree with me. We can have lunch sometime and talk about this. If you celebrate Halloween... If you don't celebrate Halloween, I don't have a problem with it as your pastor. Here's what I have a problem with. If you put down those who don't celebrate it, and you flaunt your freedom as if you are, you are enlightened in some way, and you look at others and you tell them, oh, you're not celebrating Halloween, or you're not taking part, and so we shouldn't flaunt our freedom. But you ready for the other side of the coin that frustrates me? If you don't celebrate it, don't put your conscience on other Christians. Don't do it. And so there's this there's this tension I have, but I believe there's a beautiful middle because Paul preaches about conscience and it's a fascinating 1 Corinthians Corinthians is a fascinating chapter in general. Corinthians they're all over the place. They Paul I thank God for the Corinthians. They were dysfunctional, messed up. They were like us. And so Paul goes in there and says, look, y'all got to learn how to use the gifts appropriately. Y'all got to learn how to say what's wrong, what's right. And because right away, everyone wants to put a law and a rule or people want to say, well, I'm freer than you and I'm all this. Let's be a church that appreciates each other's conscience, (laughs) knowing that. Hold on. Knowing that the Holy Spirit has said something to someone that didn't say to you. And for you, it may not be a stumbling block, but for someone else, it might be. So we lay our freedom down. Do you, get what, do you guys hear what I'm saying? All right. Getting back off of my side notes. And again, I know I have the mic and all this other things. but if you love to send me a, a, a message later on and say, hey, I'd like to sit down and have a conversation with you. And if you feel that celebrating Halloween is totally demonic and wrong and I don't want to be a part of anything like that, and you guys do, then maybe there might be another church... that fits that for you, but I, I, as a pastor, I would love to have a conversation, so I don't want to, like, I'm totally open to having a conversation, and being corrected if need be, amen? So please hear my heart, hear my heart. I want both people to feel equally comfortable in the house of God, right? Okay. All right. Probably not one of those things you say when you're starting a church and you're trying to build it, but just what happens sometimes so first corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 says this whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do it all to the glory of god whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of god this means every aspect of our lives right down to eating and drinking has the potential to honor god or dishonor god And so we are called to live for God's glory. This should be our goal. So let's break down this idea of living for God's glory. So if you were just to cut that phrase in half, we would see two sides to the same coin. Living for, which is a more practical side, and God's glory, which is more a technical theological side. So let's break down living for and God's glory. So here's what we're going to do. You can't live for until you know what you're living for. So let's talk about God's glory. We want to answer the question, what is God's glory? Well, Let me mention just a few times that the glory of God is mentioned in Scripture. In Exodus, the glory of God has filled the tabernacle. In Romans, we're told that we all fall short of God's glory. Did you know that Moses was told by God himself, you can't handle my glory? And even if I allowed you to see it, he said, you'd die. I love what one pastor describes God's glory as. And he says, God's glory is connected to God's holiness. And I love this concept, but I want you to hear me out. He says this, God's holiness is God's infinite value. It's God's intrinsic worth. And when God's value and worth goes on display in creation, when his holiness is made public, that is God's glory. And if you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, it tells us that there are angels called seraphim surrounding the throne of God day and night. And they're worshiping and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Now, after hearing that reoccurring description of the word holy, one would expect them to say the earth is filled with his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his holiness. But instead, we're told holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his what? Glory. Because God's glory is the public display of his holiness. Look how scripture describes God's glory in Psalm. You don't have to turn there. 104, chapter 1 through 2. I'm sorry. Psalm chapter 104, verses 1 through 2. says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Uh, Any Charles Stanley fans in here? Great, great man of God. Yeah, Charles Stanley says this. If you try to describe God, God is spirit. But what surrounds that spirit is this transcendent brilliance of light that no one can penetrate. It is who God is. God's glory is the radiance of his holiness. The radiance of his manifold, infinitely worthy, valuable perfections. So real and so brilliant, these characteristics literally manifest themselves out in radiant light. I absolutely love what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 has to add. Hebrews 1 3 says, he, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What do we see? We, in Jesus, we behold the full beauty and glory of God. And it's made known to us. So just to review, what is God's glory? It's the brilliance of his character made known to his creation culminating in the life of Jesus Christ it's heavy it's bright and it's entirely overwhelming so how do you practically live for God's glory how do you practically speaking live for that glory I want you to know even though it feels impossible God has made it possible but it all starts with a shift in your thinking. We're almost, we're almost through here. Stay with me. This is an important part. I want you to know, even though it feels impossible, God has made it possible. But it all starts with a shift in our thinking, in our theology. Now, I am going to break down living for God's glory in three sections, and then we are going to finish. The first one is God's involvement The second one is separating anything, not separating anything. And the third one that I'm going to talk about is, the third and final shift that I'm going to talk about is this, is that in everything, God is glorified. So let's talk about changing our minds to see God's glory in everything and how that changes everything. If you and I are going to live for God's glory, you're going to have to change the way you see God's involvement. If you and I are going to live for God's glory, if we're going to be disciples with Monday in mind and not just Sunday, we're going to have to change the way we see God's involvement. Let me ask you a question. What does a penny, a sparrow, and a hair follicle have in common? What does a penny, a sparrow, and a follicle of hair have in common? (laughs) Very good. All three are culturally unimportant. Think about it. They are the cheapest, smallest, and most insignificant items that we think about. Now, let me prove it to you. Some of you would stop for a quarter. Some of you. I heard a yeah, too. Some of you would stop for a quarter. Many of you would stop for a dollar. In fact, I think most of us would stop for a dollar. And I had to put this in here because there might be someone to get offended. But almost nobody would inconvenience themselves to pick up a penny. Right? <laughs> Someone's like, no, we'll pray for you. Now, likewise, in ancient culture, a sparrow was considered one of the smallest creatures. And sparrows, in particular, uh, the specific type of sparrow is 4.5 inches and 0.47 ounces. Or yes. And unless you have some sort of strange addiction, there's nothing special or even visible about a tiny strand of hair. Right? You ever seen strain addiction? I mean, some people eat some weird things, so maybe, you know. So here you have a penny, so a sparrow, and a follicle of hair. Now, can we listen to what Jesus has to say? Matthew chapter 10, 29 through 30 says this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Here is the shift in your thinking that needs to take place. God's not just involved, but he's intimately involved. In every detail of my life. He places world leaders and hair follicles all at the same time. He places world leaders in a position and he also positions each hair of your head. Number two, if you're going to live for God's glory, you're going to have to stop separating segregating, and compartmentalizing your life. When you believe that he's involved in everything, there is no more separating anything. See, the theology builds off itself. If you truly believe that he's in everything, then there's no separating anything. This is the second mental shift that needs to take place. Now, I remember having a group of friends, and some of you maybe remember the same, but I remember having a group of friends that would lower down the music, the conversations would stop, and every time we passed by a church, they'd do the sign of the cross. I remember I used to look at them I'm like, that's kind of weird. And so I tested. I would drive by churches on purpose, and like clockwork for some of them, they would lower the music down, the conversations would stop, and they would do the sign of the cross, and they would literally say a prayer. And then once we passed the church, the music would go back up. The conversation would pick right back up. Uh, and, um, and we left no matter of ungodly, like, ungodly conversation would start. It just really was, uh, it was just really interesting. And I thought to myself two things. The first thing I thought was, wow, how respectful. These parents have taught their children well, right? These guys were taught to honor the house of God. So much so that when they would drive by God's house, all ungodliness would cease and they'd immediately do the sign of the cross. Then as I thought a little bit more about it, I thought to myself, I began to realize these guys were also taught to reduce their relationship with God to church buildings. Church buildings, church-related events. And drive-bys. Holy drive-bys. But can I tell you this? The truth is, that's how a lot of Christians view your Christianity. We see a divide, and we create a divide between what we call the sacred and the secular. We call one aspect of our lives spiritual, and the other aspect of our lives we don't see as spiritual at all. But mission-minded disciples with Monday on their mind can no longer afford to reduce your spirituality to two hours on a Sunday morning and an occasional devotional during the week. But our response to God should reverberate in every facet of our lives, at home, at work, with our families, in our communities, and at our church. I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say, listen... To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment and it's a priestly robe to him. He sits down to his meal and it's a sacrament. He goes forth in his labor and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say this is sacred and this is secular is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. This inevitably leads us to our third and final shift. If God is intimately involved in everything, and if nothing is separated but everything is spiritual, then everything I do is for the glory of God. And everything I do has eternal significance. What does this look like in a church? And how does this play out in the life of a disciple? Please listen closely. My gospel usefulness is in my hands and not in the hands of the church or its leadership. When you know these three things, your usefulness is no longer dependent upon the leaders of the church, but your gospel usefulness is dependent upon how your theology works with the Lord and believing that God is in everything and that him in everything changes everything. Are you with me? I do not need to wait to become a leader. I do not need to wait to become an effective minister of the gospel. I do not need someone to put me in a position of power. I, don't, I do not need to be a, a youth pastor or a single adult leader. Well, if pastor so-and-so only made me a leader, I would totally do my ministry. Wow. Maybe God hasn't put you in leadership because you still think sacred and secular are segregated. You see, you feel useless, but your gospel usefulness is not based on man. You don't need man to tell you who you are in Christ. And I look out in some of the faces and I can see meaningless and hopelessness. But there's more if you just change your mind. Listen to this. When the affirmation of my identity is not based upon others but on Christ, I bring glory to God. Not only is my gospel usefulness, but check this out my workplace becomes my mission field. Mm. (laughs) Think about it. My workplace becomes my mission field. My place of employment becomes my church. I am its pastor, and every coworker I encounter my disciple. When my paycheck is secondary and my mission is primary, then I begin to give God glory. Oh, I knew I wasn't going to get a lot of love for this one. It's okay. Your workplace is your church. You are its pastor, and every employee in that building is your disciple. When your mission is primary and your paycheck is secondary, then you're giving God glory. Wow. Yeah. We're almost done. You know what else changes? My public and private life look the same. The same person you see on Sunday is the same person my family sees on Monday nights. The same person my friends see on Friday. My behavior and code of conduct does not change depending upon the circumstances or the people that I'm with. Are you ready for this? When I'm always reflecting Christ, no matter who I'm with or where I'm at, I bring glory to God. My worship is no longer contained to a song or twenty minutes on a Sunday morning, which most of us are late to anyway. When my life is a song, and my, and my when my life is a song and my sacrifice is an act of worship, I bring glory to God. My theology no longer has room for religiosity and legalism. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit empowers me to become a fearless infiltrator rather than a fearful retreater. The Holy Spirit empowers me to become a fearless infiltrator and not a fearful retreater. When I start seeing the gospel, listen to this. You ever see those little pictures? There's a big chasm and the cross lays across it and people are walking over. Now, some of us, when I start seeing the gospel as a bridge, not for the lame to walk over to get to me, Mm -hmm. the cross is a bridge, and a lot of times we see the cross as a bridge so that the sick and the lame could cross it, but if you're lame, you can't walk. Maybe we need to stop looking at that picture as a bridge for others to get to us, as a picture. Maybe we need to walk our little behinds across it and get to others, hold their hand, and bring them across with us. Amen. All of a sudden, those places, I don't just do that. I don't go there. No. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit begins to empower you, and you become a fearless infiltrator, not a fearful retreater. Finally, my goals change and my dreams change when I'm living for the glory of God. Can you guys hear this out real quick? Did you know that selfish dreams are just as small as insecure dreams? Some of you are dreaming small because you're scared, while others are dreaming small because you're only thinking about yourself. And some of us just stopped dreaming altogether. Recently, I'm going to finish with this story. I attended, there are several people in here that came with me. We were in L.A. and there was a few of us that actually went to the Bay Area church planting conference. And at this church planting conference, for those of you that had were there, they passed out napkins. Just these little napkins. Like picnic napkins. And for some people, uh, well, what they told everybody is pick up these little napkins and on these napkins, I want you to write out your dream. What is the dream that God gave you? And at first it felt a little, you know, I'm one of those guys, I'm always skeptical first and then I'm like, okay, I'll do it, right? And at first it's kind of like, oh, a little napkin, dream, I'll write my dream, okay, you know. And, and as the conference went on, I began to really think about, okay, what's the dream that God has given me? And I began to look around at other people to realize that there were a lot of people with me that couldn't write down their dream. And I had this napkin, and I remember, it, for some people, it was difficult to describe their dreams. But after a while, I, I, I knew exactly what it was. I, I finally got it. So I remember I I took the napkin and I began to to draw on the napkin what I felt like was the dream that God had given me. And I meant to bring this napkin because it's so important, but I didn't. But let me try to tell you what I drew. I tried to illustrate what a multiplying church looked like. I tried to draw what a disciple multiplying church looks like. And if I had to title my napkin, it was simply this, to multiply disciple-making churches. That was my dream, to multiply disciple-making churches. But the Lord began to convict me because the dream that i would written down, listen to this, it felt too attainable and it wasn't scary enough. Now, three years ago, Planting a church was scary. Planting a church that plants churches, a church that multiplies disciples felt scary. But we planted. We're a year and a half in. In fact, this is year number two. We're believing God's going to do more. And I'm starting to see and vision and have mission for planting multiple churches. And these are things that I'm excited about. And I feel like it was God's dream. But as I looked at it, I smiled because it felt attainable. And it didn't scare me like it used to. And I took the napkin. I drew what I felt was like my dream that God gave me. And I felt that conviction. So here's what I did. I remember Googling the population of um, Union City. And then I began to think about the tri-cities, right? So anybody's familiar, we know Union City, Fremont, and Newark are tri-cities. And I began to Google the population for each city. And I was inspired because I heard another pastor, the Lord was speaking to him in this area as well. But as I began to Google um, the population, I began to think to myself, what if God called Inspire Church to reach 1% of the tri-city? Now, you may be asked, well, I did the math. Math is not too difficult on this. 1% of Union City would be 770 people in Union City. 1% in Fremont would be 2,330. And 1% in Newark would be 450 for a ground total in the tri-city value. 1% of the tri-city population would be 3,350 people. Listen. When my dreams go beyond me, when they benefit others, and when they're entirely too big for me to accomplish without God's help, that's when I'm bringing glory to God. That's when I'm bringing glory to God. Some of you in here have stopped dreaming. Some of you in here obtained your dream and dream no longer. And some of you in here have a dream, but it's more of something, that, a goal. And my, my question to you today would be this. If you stop dreaming, why? And number two is the difference between a dream and a goal is that when you look at it, it doesn't scare you. And so what I want to charge you today as members of Inspire, as visitors, Inspire uh, Inspire, as guests, Inspire whatever it is that you find yourself today, what is the dream that God is giving you? And it can't be about you, but it's got to be about Him and for His glory. And if you're stuck or you don't have one, maybe you need to go back and have some mind shifts. Maybe some things need to start shifting in your mind because We are living for our career. Some of you see yourself, you go to work and your primary purpose is your paycheck. You're going to school right now and your primary purpose is your career. And I love you for it, but that's not your primary purpose. You're undercover. The Christian school teacher is an undercover agent for the gospel. Will you... And I don't want you to change your priority. We need to feed our families, right? We we need to get our careers. I get all that. But will you pray with me today? Thanks for staying a little extra longer this morning. Will you pray with me today and ask the Lord to shift your mindset so that in everything, God could be glorified? Let's pray. I'm just going to. As your heads bowed I eyes closed, you, like I said, you guys have been with me a little bit longer today, and I thank you for that. I'm going to just bless the vision that God is giving you. So, Heavenly Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I pray for everyone in this room. If there's anyone feeling purposeless, anyone feeling useless. Lord, I just pray right now that your spirit would come in and breathe over dry, rocky, deserted areas of our hearts. And I pray that you would breathe over those and that your Holy Spirit begin to empower us. And I pray that you would move a no dreamer to a dreamer a goal-setter to a dreamer. Lord, I pray those things that we used to think about that we knew couldn't be done without your strength, we think about those things again. We start praying for those things. Lord, I pray for every man and woman in this building, and when we leave this place, we would be inspired to give God glory in everything that we do. Lord, have your way in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Listen, thank you so much. God bless you. Next week we'll be talking about the call of God, and I'm so excited to have you. Welcome to come back. If you're part of the prayer team, we're going to meet for 10 minutes briefly here in the front. Have a wonderful Sunday. God bless you guys.